The word of the Lord from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus speaks to an adulterous and sinful generation. When he says adulterous in our text, I mean, of course, there's six commandment stuff going on because there are people around. But he's talking about a different sort of infidelity. When God makes people to be his people, he declares them to be his bride. When they depart from his word, stop trusting him, and turn to other gods, they are unfaithful to him. Unfaithful and running away, they no longer receive his forgiveness. That leaves them unfaithful or adulterous and sinful. And sadly, the default behavior of the unfaithful is to keep running, not to turn back, either to double down and legitimize their sin or sink in despair and hide. So, for instance, you have the scribes and the Pharisees, the elders in the Gospels. They're the most upstanding of the adulterous and sinful because they're the law and order crowd. They've got the diagnosis right in that people are sinful and unrighteous, and they need to be delivered from their sin and unrighteousness. However, they've got the cure wrong in that they don't teach sinners to trust in God's promises, but to dig their way out by keeping the rules better. Where the Pharisees get their way, people go from being misbehaving sinners to 
well-behaved sinners, but they're still sinners without a hope of heaven. Then you have the chief priests and the Sadducees. The Pharisees might come across as the cultural extremists in their concern for the rules, while the Sadducees usually come across as the moderates. They've made peace with a lot of secular culture and ideas, with Herod and the Greeks. Even while they control the temple, they're partial to a lot of Greek influence, philosophy included. They're mostly fine with God's word, except where it seems unreasonable, which is why, for instance, they deny the resurrection of the dead, because that's a little bit out there. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then religion is just about making this life better because this life is all you've got. The Sadducees don't care much for the Pharisees, but both groups are concerned with keeping society going, even if one of the groups would like to avoid secular culture, while the other wouldn't mind cozying up a little bit more. Aside from the Pharisees and Sadducees, of course, You've got those tax collectors, prostitutes, and other sinners. They're the ones who are blatantly adulterous and sinful. They're not covering up their sins with a patina of rules or reason. And again, if there's no hope of making yourself righteous, or if this life is all there is, why disguise their sin? They're frowned upon by others. They're spoken against. But they're still there. There's a market for what they do, as long as they don't provoke the wrong people. So just imagine being a believer in a world where you have folks saying that the faith should be focused more on fixing the world with rules, either because better behavior is the goal or because it would be foolish to proclaim a resurrection of the dead. Just imagine being a believer in a world where sinners are simply legitimizing their sin and trying to get you to support it too. And of course, there's no need to imagine any of that. It's going to be hard for you to stay faithful when you're surrounded by Pharisees and Sadducees and manifest sinners, and really, it kind of are today. And sometimes they'll lean on you to bend you to their way. Sometimes the cultural drumbeat will get you thinking that they're right before you know what's going on. That happens easily when you were born an adulterous and sinful old Adam yourself. Well, Jesus enters this sinful world incarnate in the flesh. He is faithful and sinless amongst an unfaithful and sinful generation. And he is here to be their savior. As he preaches and travels and works wonders, the news spreads and the talk grows. So finally, one day, Jesus broaches the topic with his disciples on the way to Caesarea Philippi. He asks them, who do people say that I am? They run down the list of leading contenders that people think Jesus is John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. He then asks them, but who do you say that I am? And this This is Peter's moment. You are the Christ, he confesses. And he's right. Jesus doesn't deny it. He does, however, strictly warn them not to tell anyone about him. 
He tells them this because of what he tells them next. See, now that the disciples know who Jesus is, it's time for the Christ to tell them what he's going to do, how the Christ is going to redeem the world. So he tells them that he, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. What happens next is decidedly not Peter's moment. He takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him for saying such a stupid, horrible thing. We don't hear Peter's reasons for the rebuke. It could be the obvious idea that you don't conquer your enemies by losing to them. And what Jesus just said sure sounds like he's going to lose. It could be that Peter's more influenced by the Pharisees than he knows. And there's just no way he sees Jesus behaving badly enough to earn a death sentence. It could be that he's got some Sadducee philosophy in his head. And that would explain why Jesus saying that he'll rise from the dead seems to have no comfort at all. It could just be the old sinner in Peter calculating that the death of Jesus won't mean anything good for any disciples who get labeled co-conspirators. Could just be visceral that Peter loves Jesus and doesn't want anything bad to happen to him. It's one of those things about life in this world that often when you have some reaction, you can't even be sure of your motives yourself for having it. Whatever his thoughts, though, Peter is wrong. And as Jesus turns around and sees his disciples nearby, he rebukes Peter in no uncertain terms. He says, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Whatever his motives, Peter has set his mind on the things of man, not of God, says Jesus. The things of man are not just the things of man, but Jesus declares him to be satanic. See, the gospel is that God loves you so much that he's willing to become flesh, suffer, and die in your place and for your sin, and then rise from the dead. God does this because it is the only way to save you. To rebuke Jesus for going about this plan, that is to say that you reject God's plan and God's love because you have more important things to do like behave well or behave badly, or change a dying world because you think heaven is too good to be true, or at least sound reasonable to the world because you don't want it to think that you're crazy. Whatever Peter's motivation for telling Jesus he can't die on the cross, Jesus calls him Satan because he and the evil one are in agreement that Jesus should not die for the sins of the world. And then what happens? Jesus keeps heading for the cross. And in fact, when he tells Peter to get behind him, he's not saying, go away. After all, who is behind him? Who is following Jesus? His followers follow him, his disciples. 
That rebuke has got to sting Peter, but it is for his good. Jesus is telling Peter to keep following, even if Jesus' path doesn't go the way that Peter wants, because Jesus is headed for the cross, and he is headed for the cross for the salvation of the world. This is why he says to both his disciples and the crowd, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Deny yourself, says Jesus. Take every objection you have to how Jesus does things, no matter how much sense they make to you, and set them aside. Take up your cross. Acknowledge that as scandalous and crazy as it sounds, you have eternal life because the Son of God became flesh to shed his blood in your place for your sins. Do things your way with your pet ideas and you lose your life and you forfeit your soul. Follow Jesus and your soul and life are forever. Insist that you're right and Jesus is wrong now and Jesus will acknowledge your position on the last day. He will simply say what is true, that you wanted to save yourself, you rejected his plan of salvation, and that will be to your shame. Deny yourself and take up the cross. In other words, here we go again. Repent. Stop believing all the stuff that will destroy your soul and cling to Christ for your salvation. Give thanks to God for the order that he gives to this world by the laws that he has put in place. Keep those laws for yourself. Practice them in love for your neighbor and work as a citizen to extend their influence throughout our messed up culture. But unlike the Pharisees, never make obedience the be-all and end-all of your faith because this world will be the world which ends. Working to improve the world it's like taking care of your car. It's a good thing. You're doing your best to maintain it, even though you know it's going to fall apart someday. Do your best to be a shining light in this world, but rejoice that Jesus didn't come to give you a better life in a dying world. He came to give you eternal life when this world has indeed passed away. Needless to say, but still necessary, unlike impenitent tax collectors and prostitutes, don't throw up your hands and say that sin doesn't matter because the world is falling apart. Again, the world is falling apart, which is why Jesus shed his blood to save you from sin and death. 
Give thanks to God for his gift of reason, because it is by means of this that you are able to understand so much about his creation, that so many are able to make use of his provision to make our lives so much better. But unlike the Sadducees, don't try to put salvation into a reasonable box. Pinnacle has rules that govern that game, but you can't make all of life conform to Pinnacle rules. When the boss gives you a rough assignment at work, you can't say bitter bunch and ask for a new deal. Life is bigger than the rules of a card game. Likewise, don't try to make salvation conform to reason, because reason is too small a box in which to put God's love for you. God's love for you is so beyond reason that because the wages of sin is death and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins, God has become man so that he can die your death, so that he can shed his blood for your forgiveness and then raise you from the dead. That is truly love beyond reason. Don't try to make it make sense. Rejoice in his love for you beyond comprehension. If clinging to love so great is the cross that you must bear to the scorn of the world, well, that says more about the folly of the world than it does of you. By his death and resurrection, Christ has redeemed you forever, soul and all. He has delivered you from this adulterous and sinful generation giving you faith and declaring you sinless by his blood. Because he has done so, on the last day, he will not be ashamed of you. So follow him, for his way leads to eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.